first one to the top of the road shall inherit the kingdom of the piss fox. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. The sound is quite different this week, and I'll tell you why. I'm not in my studio at all. I'm away from my studio this week because I'm off doing a little bit of work. But where I am, the sound is disgraceful. Like, listen to this. Postman! Postman! Listen to that terrible echo. So I brought my good mic with me, but a good mic isn't worth fuck all. If the room you're in contains multiple echoes, so I'm going to try and speak as lowly as I can so that we don't have a very a very loud podcast. Now, the problem that's happening is that my microphone has got one of those real furry things on it, you know, to keep the wind away from it. But I have to go up so close to the microphone to get a decent sound that the furriness of the mic is now invading the, the inside of my nostrils. So that's quite unpleasant. So hopefully I won't sneeze in the middle of this podcast. Just a little live gig update. So if you were listening last week or the week before, you'd know that I had some gigs planned um, in Cork on the 27th and 28th of December. They're sold out. However, I've now had to move them until March, unfortunately. So if you bought tickets for that gig, they're going to be uh, valid in March and you'll get a little email, I imagine. The reason this is happening is the government brought in very sudden restrictions to live gigs as a result of the pandemic. I don't have a problem with restrictions being brought in to gigs because of public health reasons. I understand that. The issue I have is that the nature with which they did it. So December is a very big month for live gigs. A lot of people plan their tours around December. Like when it comes to a live gig, it's not just the artist that's employed. You've got venue staff, right? Door staff, security, lighting people, sound people. Several people get employed when a gig goes on, not to mention the artist and the promoter. You've got photographers who come along to the gigs. You've got journalists who come along to review gigs. It's an entertainment industry. So now a lot of people are without employment for the month of December, an incredibly busy month, and January and February are quiet. So a huge swathe of people now don't have income for December. And the government regulations are gigs can go ahead but only at 50% capacity. Now what's the problem with that? What the government should be doing is if the government come in and say you can do a gig but only if 50% of people are allowed in, then the government effectively should be purchasing half the tickets, subsidising the gig so that everyone gets paid. But what happens when the government says you can do a lot of gigs in, in December if you like, but they must be at 50% capacity. No one's going to do that gig. Because if you run a gig at 50% capacity, then it doesn't earn enough money to make the gig make sense. People aren't getting paid if you run a gig at 50% capacity because you still have to pay for the overheads like venue hire, electricity, all this stuff. So by the government saying... You can do gigs, but at 50% capacity, what it does is it forces all artists to cancel their gigs. So that's what everyone's doing. Everyone is 
cancelling their gigs in December and postponing them if they're lucky, if they're able to even postpone them. And it's just a really shitty, sneaky thing the government has done. Because if they outright cancelled gigs, then they might have a responsibility to subsidise. But they're not doing that. They're saying, oh, you can do gigs, but you have to do them at 50%. And no venue is going to do that. No promoter is going to do that. No artist is going to do that. Because a 50% capacity gig is not economically viable. People don't get paid if you do that gig. Plus, it's a, it's a logistical nightmare. Let's just say I was like, fuck that. I'm going to do my two Cork gigs at the end of December and I'm going to do them at 50% capacity. Like, what do you do? How do I pick half the audience and say, you can't come? And if I do say you can't come, like, are Ticketmaster going to give back the fee for those people who bought those tickets? Highly unlikely. So the government have done a sneaky thing. They presented the entire live industry with a catch-22. And like I said, I'm not complaining. If this is a public health thing, if, if it's a safety thing, if it's reducing the spread of COVID, fair enough. But subsidise people for the love of fuck. This is people's lives. This is people's livelihoods. And it's just one of mul- multiple occasions where it's quite clear that the the Irish government just doesn't take the entertainment industry seriously at its core the Irish government doesn't view live gigs or nightclubs or any type of entertainment as legitimate employment or as a real job it's like cancelling a fun party and it's like no yes it might look like fun but there's a lot of professionals involved in this and now they don't have work so this December Support Irish artists in any way you can. If you have a fucking band that you were going to go and see and now you can't because it's postponed, have a think about buying their merch or something like that, you know? Because a lot of people are out of work. I'm disturbed by the sound of this this microphone, lads, in this room. It's really, really bothering me. Um, luckily, this week I have a pre-recorded interview and a fantastic guest that you're going to enjoy listening to. The guest that I have this week is Professor Ian Robertson. And Ian Robertson is a clinical psychologist, a neuroscientist. They're a professor of psychology in Trinity College in Dublin. So Ian is also just a a really nice person, someone who's down to earth and is good crack. Most importantly, he's an expert in his field. Not only is he an expert in his field, he's world-renowned. He's the real deal. And me and Ian had a chat about, about neuroscience and about psychology. Mainly this is about anxiety. We spoke about anxiety and this conversation we had, it nearly ended up as a therapy session for me. Because I spoke about my own experiences with anxiety. But as I was doing it, Ian kind of explains what's happening in the human brain when we experience anxiety. So this is a really enjoyable chat that I had that I'm excited to share with you. Also, we spoke a little bit about neurodivergence, things like that. Ian himself is quite critical of the medicalization 
of human behavior but mainly if you experience anxiety if you're interested in what anxiety is here's a conversation with a fucking expert about it something i'd like to flag before we go straight into the interview is so i'm very interested in cognitive behavioral therapy i've done numerous podcasts on cognitive behavioral therapy it's a therapy process that i use on myself and that i've gone through in counseling but the thing is with cbt it's it's made by and for a western society and by western society i mean a society that traces its ideological roots to ideas that come from the romans and the greeks specifically ideas of rationalism and western empiricism and evidence-based stuff we take this for granted because we come from the west we take it for granted but these are almost social constructs our way of thinking about society about ourselves about other people about time our entire way of relating with these things goes right back to greek and roman ideas and cbt is made with that in mind but some societies and some cultures specifically indigenous cultures like indigenous cultures in in south america or in africa or in australia these cultures don't originate from western concepts of rationalism and empiricism so there's this big debate going around the world that western psychology and specifically cbt sometimes doesn't work on people who don't come from a culture that's based in western empiricism in in ideas that comes from the greeks and the romans so one of the things i brought up in the chat with ian was i brought up an um there's indigenous cultures in Australia. I believe their names are the Yarralin and the Yingara people. And they have a very different view and perception of time than we would in the West. Now, already that might sound a bit, a bit mad. How can you have a different perception of time? Time is there. Time is observable. It's the linear passage of events. Well, that's actually the... That's actually the limitation of our Western thought. If you look at what a quantum physicist would have to say, or an astrophysicist, modern science, modern physics, modern physics will say that time is not linear. Time can be circular. Time is bendable. Time is movable. So this idea of time being straight and fixed, that's the limitation of the Western mind. And there's indigenous cultures that have a an idea of time that's actually much more in line with what current science says. And one example is this indigenous Australian culture that I bring up because I was reading a paper and in this paper they were speaking about the folklore of these peoples. And in this folklore, Ned Kelly is present. Ned Kelly was an Australian bushranger from Ireland. In, in the folklore of the Yarralin and the Yingara people, like, we think of Ned Kelly as, oh yeah, he was a fella, and he was alive, and he's dead. And that's how we think of Ned Kelly in the West. But in the folklore of these people, Ned Kelly is, like, alive and dead at the same time, and he's everywhere all at once. And it's hard for us to get our heads around it. So... 
So I brought it up because I was asking Ian, how would something like CBT, which is so rooted in Western empiricism, how could that possibly be of benefit or help people whose idea of something like time is so fundamentally different to our idea of it? And I don't think I gave the concept and idea of this the respect that it deserved up on stage. I don't think I had all the facts at hand, so I'm flagging it beforehand. I'm going to go back to Australia, hopefully sometime in 2022, to do a tour. And when I do, I want to speak to an Indigenous Australian person about the folklore and ideas and the underpinnings of that culture because to me it's utterly fascinating and I've even tried to read about it like there's a concept within indigenous Australian belief systems called the dream time and it sounds fascinating but I don't even think I have the language to understand it it's so different to western empiricism I don't think I can even truly understand it But I have listeners to this podcast who are Indigenous Australian people, so apologies if I didn't give the concepts and ideas the respect they deserved. I'm very aware of the impact of colonialism on Indigenous Australian people and the erasure of your culture and the genocide that happened in Australia to Indigenous people. And if you have any thoughts about when I get to Sydney or Melbourne or Perth, who I should talk to, who can would be good to chat to about Indigenous Australian mythology, please give me a shout on Instagram, DM or whatever the fuck. So before we get into the chat with Ian Robertson, the neuroscientist, the psychologist, the pre- professor of psychology, let's have a little ocarina pause. I don't have an ocarina because I'm not even in my studio. I'm not even in my studio. What have I got? I've got a weightlifting glove. I've got a single weightlifting glove that happened to be in my bag. All right? I don't even have anything percussive. So let's let's play with the with the weightlifting glove. And and while this is happening, you might hear an advert. Oh, there's Velcro. Okay. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, this is an advertisement for better help. I have frequently attended therapy for the past 20 years when I experience anxiety or depression or when I have difficulty naming and labelling my emotions, identifying my emotions. I often seek the help of a professional therapist 
to improve my emotional literacy. I've attended therapy in person and I've attended therapy online. If online therapy is something you might be interested in, give better help a try. It's entirely online, it's convenient, flexible and it's suited to your schedule. All you gotta do is fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So give it a go. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash blindbuy today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash blindbuy. Oh yeah. Tonight, guys, on 2FM, we're moving the Velcro on a weightlifting glove here. There's a lot of traffic on the M50. Lots of traffic there on the M50, guys. If you've got a phone call, 78321, ring in. Tell us your opinions about the Velcro glove. So, there you go. You'd have heard a fucking advert there for some shit. <laughs> I can't get over the sound of this fucking room. Um, s- Support the back. And, and now the fucking microphone fluffy thing is in my nose. Support this podcast on Patreon, will you? Um, Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. This podcast is my full-time job. This podcast is how I earn a living. I adore doing it. I love it. But if you enjoy this podcast and you're taking something from it, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. All I'm looking for is the price of a pint or a cup of coffee once a month. Alright, if you can't afford that, if you're out of work, don't worry about it. Alright, if you can afford it, you're paying for the person who can't afford it. So everybody gets a podcast, I get to earn a living. What a beautiful model that's based on soundness and kindness. Patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. Support independent podcasts, support whatever small independent podcast you're listening to because podcasts are, are... They're turning into radio. Podcasts are turning into radio. See, you wouldn't get 2FM with a fucking echo in the room like that. Support independent podcasts any way you can. Like them, share them, you know the crack. I'm on Twitch. Not this Thursday, because I'll be away. Friday night, I'm back in my studio. I'll be on Twitch. Twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast. Support this podcast on Patreon. Thank you to all my patrons. Beautiful people. Okay, here's the chat I had with Professor Ian Robertson, an expert in neuroscience, an expert in psychology. It's less of a chat and it turned into more of uh, me receiving a therapy session in front of a thousand people. But there you go. Dog bless. Also, before I forget, Ian has written many books that are worth checking out. Go to ianrobertson.org and if you want to follow him on Twitter, it's at... I hate Robertson. And then an amazing thing happened in the 1980s. They found out how to make MRI scanners able to look at brain function, okay? To look at the the brain working as you remembered things or thought about things. That's brain imaging, functional brain imaging. And suddenly psychology became respectable to neuroscientists and suddenly you got this uh, joining of the study of the brain. But what, uh, was, <clears throat> what was neuroscience before MRI scans? Was that like literally chopping up people's brains? 
and it was almost and it was almost entirely well the the, 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 the medical doctors who studied neurology uh, chopped up or, and, and neuropathologists chopped up people's brains then they did they they discovered CT scanners that could give you pictures of the structure of the brain. And then the MRI scanners that could look at the structure in much more detail. And then, so, so, and then, so neurologists would study people with diseases of the brain, etc. And, and then, you can look yeah. at people's brains while they're thinking about a certain yeah, thing and actually yeah, yeah. see in real yeah, time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and now you can even put um, s tiny um, magnetic pulses into the brain while they're doing thinking and uh, em emotional tasks or remembering tasks. And you can then see how the different parts of the brains are interacting when you, when you activate one part. So it's, it's becoming incredibly sophisticated. But that being said, I'm a psychologist. Uh, you know, to get respectability it, 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 among the neuroscientists who largely worked with small animals and, and cells in, in, in the laboratories, to get their respect, you know, we, we call ourselves cognitive neuroscientists now, but we're really psychologists. And so. psychology is almost philosophy. Well, you see, f f philosophers are, most philosophers are much smarter than I am. It's a hugely challenging, intellectually demanding uh, enterprise. Psychology is a science where, and science is a method, and it's a method for correcting the inevitable uh, tendency we, we all have to want to confirm our own opinions and uh, observations. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of systematically gathering data to, to say, am I right or am I wrong? And, and, and psychology has made advances where it has been a, a science. And there have been great psychologists like Freud and Jung who have come up with amazing observations and ideas, but they weren't scientists. And some of their ideas were absolutely on the ball, and some of them were wrong. And they, but they didn't, they, they, they weren't committed to the science, to science in the way that you are, blind boy. I mean, oh, thank you. You've got a real. I mean, the reason I was so delighted with our conversation with a couple of weeks ago was because you, you respect science and you understand science and you want to know about science. And so, the way we make progress is by correcting this tendency we all have to verify our own opinions. <laughs> and that's, that's so method, science is not just another perspective on the world, another kind of alternative view. Science is a method for correcting our inevitable tendencies to, 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 and all the kind of tricks of the mind, the heuristics we have that make us make false conclusions and, and we can trick ourselves so easily. So science is basically a set a toolbox to help us not, not, not trick ourselves all the time. Like, so I, I, I tend to associate science with rationality, okay? Yeah. And something like cognitive, science, cognitive psychology, that's really rationality-based. Yeah. You, you in, in fact, like, to use, yeah, I speak about CBT a lot. You're familiar with CBT, yeah? So to use CBT means to, you live your life like a scientist. Yeah. If you suffer anxiety, depression, you take the faulty beliefs that you have about yourself or about other people or about the world, and then you test them against reality to, yeah. get, to see the yeah. result. Yeah. But how does human beings are irrational? Like irrationality is a, hu is, is a part of the human condition. I was telling you earlier about it. I spent a good year literally being afraid of my shadow. Yeah. Like how does... How do you make that science? Like e even something like, like Carl Jung, some of his stuff was mad. 
like his theory of the collective unconscious. Yeah. Like, how does that bear with, with modern science or modern psychology? Is, is Jung a, a, a dirty word? <laughs> Look, uh, Jung, uh, Jung was an incredibly clever guy, but he wandered off into becoming overconfident about his own ideas and, okay. and engaging. So he became as much an artist as he was, and not really a scientist. So he, he, the thing about these kind of turn-of-the-century psychoanalysts was they, they built cults. It's very, very easy in this That's area true. to build a cult. <laughs> I could, it is, though. I c no, but I mean, seriously, like yeah. we, we have this definition of a cult. We, we have in our minds of what a cult looks like. But then if you, if you take that away and you look at what happens on, on Facebook groups or even on Twitter, it's the same mechanics of what a cult is. It just doesn't look like what we think, what we think a cult is, you know? So it makes no scientist, you're right, so it, makes no, it makes no sense for a scientist to say, are you a Jungian or a Freudian? That is cult language. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's about the ideas and the observations. Are they, do they stand up to the methods of science as to whether they're true or not. And, and the methods of science do work for the mind. And some of them end up being true and some, some of them being false. Now, you, we had a very interesting talk about you, about how, do, how would cognitive behavior therapy work in a, a culture where, you know, indigenous culture, for instance, where verbal analytic thinking isn't... Oh, done. yeah. So the, what we were chatting yeah. about was... Yeah. Um, so, like... If you think of CBT, right, that's very much based on... The, 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 rationalism is a Western idea. It, it's Western empiricism, which comes from the Greeks and the Romans, right? And that CBT works really well in, in our Western society. But if you think of a culture like um, indigenous Australian people, there, there's indigenous Australian cultures, and they don't even have a concept of time the way that you and I do. We think of time... It's quite capitalistic. It's, we think of time as just the pa this thing that passes, right? But, like, there's a, there's a culture in... I don't know what part of Australia it is. It's near where Ned Kelly was. You know where, who Ned Kelly was, don't you? The mad Irish fellow who dressed him up in tin and fought the guards. So Ned Kelly is like a bushranger folk hero in Australia. But there's an indigenous tribe who not worship Ned Kelly, but they have respect for him. But they don't see Ned Kelly as dead. They're like, Ned Kelly is dead, and he's also here now, and he's also everything all at once. And we, we don't even have language to understand that. Like, if you say that to us, it's just like, no, he's dead. And what you're talking about is, is his memory. But they're like, no, we have a completely different worldview. We view time and everything completely differently. And then the question is, how does Western, psych Western psychology then how does it help people like that when they don't have a context for Western uh, rationality? Well, uh, the thing is that um, there's different ways of thinking. And, you know, when you're writing one of your amazing short stories, the last thing you can, should be in or is, is in a state of rationality. Yeah, it doesn't work. So you have to... <laughs> no. <laughs> so you have to, you have to unlock circuits in your brain in order to engage in this amazing uh, flight of fancy. 
But you also have to earn a living. So, yes. so, so you're a very, you're a very well organized guy who, you know, who gets this amazing event together. So it's, it's not an either or. I have a closed way of operating my mind and an open way of operating my mind. So when I'm creating, when I'm, when I'm writing a short story like that one about Rory Gallagher, I literally have to find a space and I relate it back to childhood play. It's like I'm playing with Lego. But I need to get to a state whereby the rules of society which say to me, you can't write a story about climbing inside Rory Gallagher, man, that's just ridiculous. But I have to go, the fact that my brain is telling me that that's ridiculous, I need to follow that and try and make it make sense. And I call that, well, I don't call it that. The, the psychologist Donald McKinnon, who studied creative flow, calls it the open way of thinking. And when you're thinking in an open fashion, criticality doesn't come in, the rules of society don't come in. I forget to eat. I, 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 like if I do creative flow for a long enough time, I'll forget my dinner. Mm-hmm. And, and if I was to operate that all the time, I would not function as a human being. Yeah. So I have to compartmentalize and then I'm in the closed way of thinking and that's how I do something like organize this gig. That's how I wash myself. That's how yeah. I live a life in accordance with the rules of society. But that doesn't allow creativity in. That's what we were getting at. And I'm imagining that when you're in that state of flow, if you can get into it, the self, the ego, the, the, the vulnerable self and ego doesn't really, it's gone. I'm nothing. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a ball of energy floating Whereas in the universe. Whereas when, when you're anxious, the, big, the self is kind of shivering in a corner there. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing we know, we know about the brain, the, the self is a, is a construction, it's, a, it's, a, it's an illusion. It's a, it's what does that mean now, the self is a, is a construction? That um, we are a, a collection of habits and impulses and uh, influences on us that we don't, un- we don't uh, know about, you know, the, the, uh, historically and currently, the environment we're in, the people we're in, the upbringing we've had. The, we, we can't understand most of the things that are causing you to say the thing you are saying now or behaving. Um, and and the, the illusion that we have a pilot inside our head, a self that's making these decisions um, is, is, yes, there is, of course, that experience. Of course, I wouldn't be here tonight if I didn't have a self. But it's, it's a very fragile, artificial um, construction. And uh, in fact, there's some very interesting work going on now. There's a, a resurgence of... Res- research into psychedelics. Yes. Where, where, <laughs> which I don't are, even uh, do them. I get a panic attack. <laughs> yeah. Um, where, where you do get a, uh, that, that kind of breaks down and you get, actually, in some of these states, you, you get closer to the raw brain function, the raw. What, what raw, does that mean? Well, um, the, the brain acts as a prediction machine. So what you see is essentially what you predict. So you meet someone you know in the street and, and your brain doesn't kind of process the full complexity of that person's face. Or, and, you know, you don't Fucking see like a hell. child. You don't see like a child because you have learned through learning to see what you expect to see. Jesus And the Christ. way the brain works is, is essentially is a tick box. Ah, yeah, that's what I expected. It's filling in the dots. It's filling in the dots. Exactly right. 
And um, that's what, how we get through life if we didn't fill in the dots. Because if you went around like a, my two-year-old grandson going, yeah, look at that, you know. If you went around like that all the time... You'd get nothing done. You shouldn't be nothing done. You'd be eaten by a tiger and you'd be dead, you know. So you, you, have, to, you, have, to, you have to start predicting the world. But that can become a trap. And what, uh, and what, what the, the way that some of these psychedelics seem to act is by, is by disrupting that prediction mechanism, okay? Which can have bad consequences, as you've just said, as well as interesting consequences. But it's, so it should only be used in a therapeutic context, and that's not available in this country. It's only available in research places, yeah. you know. But it could be in, in 10 years' time that that... Well, I actually, I was in Australia, and I, yeah. I interviewed Dr. Paul Litnitsky, who was given a license to do it. He's using it with uh, patients who were dying. Yeah. He's using psychedelics as what he recalls as a, a dress rehearsal for death. Yeah. Which is phenomenal when you think about it. People who are like two weeks, they're like, you've got two weeks to live. And he takes him through a psychedelic experience, which is, I don't know what the fuck it is, but that's what he does. Yeah, but... <laughs> he's a real doctor, like he's got a grant off the Australian government, like it's not some lad I met. Yeah. <laughs> but you were saying about Ned Kelly and about these guys that think that time, Ned Kelly still exists, but you know, um, and you're right, time is a, time is a, a construction. I mean, you, you were talking about Einstein earlier. Yeah. About time doesn't exist on its own. It's space-time. Our, our perception yeah. of time is wrong. And what, what science tells us about time... Yeah. Like, time bends with yeah. gravity. So, if, uh, yeah. like, if I was able to go to the sun, I'm not. But if I was able to go to the sun for an hour, if I came back to Earth, like, a couple of weeks or years could have passed. Exactly, And yeah. that's, that's real. That's... Time fucking bends. Yeah, so, so that means, and also, we, we are all, you, everything we are doing just now is the exchange of information. It's yeah. in, information. Uh, in fact, the whole economy is now based on information on Facebook and Twitter and everything like that. It's, so it's, that that's, and the human brain is an information processor. And the, the, we all know the, the law of physics that says energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Well, there is a similar law in quantum physics that says information can be neither created nor destroyed, which makes me realize or, or believe that actually um, the indigenous people in Australia who believe that Ned Kelly is still there, they're right in a sense mm -hmm. because the whole information that was Ned Kelly has still exists in the universe and still con continues. Oh, that's uh, beautiful. Uh, uh, you know, so, so information, <laughs> so, so that's why there is a kind of digital in immortality around, you know, for, as a comfort for us all, you know. <laughs> well, I often, so I wouldn't be, I, I'm, not into the kind, I'm not into God, I don't believe in him. Yeah. No, I don't want to say that, that's too arrogant. I'd be agnostic, I don't know what the crack is, right, but I'm not into that whole God thing. I'm not buying that one. But one thing I do to process grief, like I, my dad died when I was 20, right? Yeah. And one thing I do, I can't soothe myself by saying, oh, he's above in heaven now, fucking having crack with his granddad. I can't go there, you know, I'd love to. That'd be lovely to think I could, but I can't. But what I do instead is I, it's a concept I took from a fellow called Irving Yellum. He's a, yeah. a, a psychotherapist and the concept of rippling. So like, my dad's dead, and you, you can apply this, not just my dad, but anyone's dad who's dead, or anyone's 
person who was close to you who was dead how th- their ideas their mannerisms like there's there's ways that i move my hands or, or cross my legs and that's how my dad used to do it yeah. or i have values and i d- beliefs and they're all from him and he's not physically here but like how can he be gone yeah when it's there in how i speak and how i relate to the world so therefore yeah his physical body is gone but He's not dead. No, he's not. The information's still there yeah. in, some, in some form. Yeah, but and still active and yeah. still useful. But not the individual self. Yeah. Because that is a bit of a, a temporary artificial construction yeah. for, to survive on, the, you know, on Earth. And, um, you know, it can, I used to study people who had strokes to the right hemisphere mm-hmm. of their brain, which produced a, a phenomenon in some people called unilateral neglect, where they lost... Mm-hmm. Um, awareness of the whole left side, not just the left side of their body, but the whole left side of space. So it was what? as if it was as if the the world on the left side didn't exist, and and that could produce remarkable phenomena of people who there was a, I remember a chap who was completely paralysed, and he's, he couldn't move his left arm at all, but believed he had a third arm that could move, and he had completely believed firmly that this is called paraphrenia where he believed he had a, a third arm and, and, and I'd say well sh- show, it, show me moving it and he, and he would move it. And this guy wasn't psychotic. You can't see it but to him he's moving to it. To him it was completely And how real. cognizant was this person? How able were you to engage with him in a, in a conversation? Well, yeah really really well really well so it's not, it's not against he was able to talk about his family able to talk about you know having a stroke but there was this he denied he was paraplegic because he had this third arm that could that could move. Did that worldview help him to live his life with meaning, or was no? It, it's it's that denial of your disability is called anosognosia. Is mm-hmm. is actually associated with you doing rather poorly? A huge. So I asked the internet for some questions <clears throat> when I said that you were going to come on, and a massive thing that people wanted me to speak about with you was. What is neurodivergence? People who are neurodivergent, what is that? What does it mean? Oh, that's a great question. So, um, I'm, I'm a, temperamentally a, quite an anxious person. Uh, you know, I was an anxious child. I was, you know, cried, didn't want to go to school. You know, so, so, so in, a, in a sense, I'm neurally divergent mm-hmm. <laughs> because I'm, I have a slight propensity for anxiety. Now, mm-hmm. that over, I've learned you know, as you have to, mm-hmm. to, to control this. And, and I, I'm not an anxious person now, you know, largely. Are, are you still neurodivergent? You just have tools to work with it? You see, here's, here's, the, here's the challenge here. It's about... Um, it used to be that you would describe people in continuums of personality. Mm-hmm. So you would get some people... So we've got extrovert, introvert. Now, these, yeah. are, not, these are not two categories. That's a continuum. Mm-hmm. People vary on this. Anxiety and um, stability. These are the two big, two of the really big personality dimensions. But they're not, they're not categories. They're not medical categories. They're mm-hmm. continuum. And that's also true for things like, um, if you like, the, the kinds of behaviors that are associated, say, with Asperger's. Mm-hmm. Or your propensity to have mood swings. All of these are dimensions, not categories. So when someone says something like ADHD, which is considered neurodivergent, are you, you're not crazy about that label? Well, you see, here's, here's the challenge. 
It's a spectrum. And there is a big, big downside. You, we have to respect and admire the wonderful uh, variance of human behavior and mm -hmm. categories. But you have to beware of putting on a coat that says, I have this medical, essentially medical diagnosis, because that's mm -hmm. what it is. The problem then is that um, the great psychologist Carol Dweck in Stanford, you'll, you'll know about her, you know, she, she says, the theory you have about yourself is so important, whether you have a fixed or a change mindset. Now, industry has taken this on big time and commercialized it, but it's mm -hmm. a fundamental idea of what you, how you think of yourself. So if you internalize a medical diagnosis, what that is saying is essentially I'm no longer in control of certain mm -hmm. aspects of my behavior. And therefore you won't engage in the ups and downs and difficult learning that you need to do to change these behaviors. Because the, the human brain is enormously plastic, mm -hmm. hugely plastic. We only have 20,000 genes. <laughs> they cannot possibly code for all the behaviors we engage in and the emotions we have. We were designed to be shaped by our environments and our mm -hmm. experiences. And what, the, what, what, what classifying oneself as being neurodiverse in a certain way, the risk you run is you, you sabotage your belief and confidence in being able to change mm -hmm. the way you are. <laughs> uh, whereas, you know, if someone who's been very anxious, for instance, mm -hmm. if, they are, if they were to adopt that mantle and say, oh, I'm, uh, I'm essentially genetically anxious. Yeah. Why are you then going to engage on the tough business of relearning that you require in order to become less anxious? And we can all learn to be learn to be less anxious. Because just, uh, so if essentially... You're, you're almost critiquing psychiatry there to an extent, yes. you know? Yes, I am. Yeah, and... Well, uh, yeah, yes, I am. A, a medicalization of human behavior has huge risks to it. So w one thing that we'll say psychiatrists will use to diagnose is the, the Diagnostics and Statistic Manual. And this is <clears throat> like a, t a checklist. Yeah. And one thing I always, with myself and my own journey, that I always remember... When I was like 19, 20 and I first presented with anxiety, now I, I didn't know what it was. I'd been living with it for about a year. It had gotten so bad that I had agoraphobia. I was living with anxiety so continually and consistently that you know, it affected my stomach. I started to veer into what you could call psychotic territory. I was living my life in a way that was deeply irrational. I joked earlier about being afraid of my shadow. I was fucking afraid of my shadow. I would see my shadow on a wall and I couldn't tell the difference between me and my shadow. So I used to go like this and I'd walk around like that because if I saw my fucking shadow, it would scare the living fuck out of me because I'm like, how do I know I'm me and that's not me? And that's where I'd gotten to. The anxiety, anxiety was so bad that that's where I'd gotten to because I was stressed out so much that I'm not, I, now I can go, what the fuck, it's your fucking shadow for fuck's sake. Just hold up a lamp for God's sake. I can do that now 
because I'm able to use the criticality of my brain. I, I, in a relaxed way, I'm able to see that that's utterly absurd. But I was so, in, like, six months of anxiety a year, not a fucking hope I was going there. And when I first presented to a psychiatrist, luckily, I happened to meet a psychiatrist who was very open-minded, who was forward-thinking. They could have DSM'd me as psychotic at that point and put me on an antipsychotic. They, read, they could have done it quite easily. Instead, this psychiatrist said to me, no, you've got anxiety. Let me explain to you. This is a, it's like a, a fire alarm going off and there's no fire. And he said to me, I'm going to recommend to you a book. And the book was called The Calm Technique. It was just basic meditation. And I went and I meditated. I learned how to breathe properly. So I'm breathing from my stomach. And then after about a week then of proper breathing, I'm like, yeah, I think it's just my shadow. Do you, do you know what I mean? But I'd gone down by about 50%. I'd gone down to now all of a sudden, I still have an anxiety, but for it to seem manageable. And he gave me the option of medication and he gave me the option to come back. But I went back then and things had changed because this person... I could have gone both ways. I could have walked out with a diagnosis, with a label, with medication to go along with it. And I don't think I'd be where I am today if that happened. You wouldn't. And I'm so glad you met a really good psychiatrist who was, yeah. pra was practising excellent, excellent psychology and not trying to... They were a Buddhist. They happened to be a Buddhist yeah. while being a psychiatrist. And that's what yeah. helped. But, you know, had you... Had you there could be, I, I, I were Many years ago, I worked in... New Zealand in a psychiatric clinic, and I, I saw horrible cases of young, young people coming into that totally medical model psychiatric clinic with, a, with an episode of psychosis. And I've, I saw them ending up being heavily, more and more heavily medicated, ending up in one with a padded cell in this place, mm -hmm. would you believe? It was just ghastly. And I remember going in an ambulance with this poor young lad where he was going to be for the... I, 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 I fear for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. And yet, that yes, the guy did have a psychotic breakdown. It could have developed into really bad schizophrenia, mm -hmm. but it didn't have to. Mm -hmm. had he, had it, it was because the psychiatrist in that place had a completely medical model Mm -hmm. that everything was a symptom of a disorder, a chemical disorder of the brain. And so the idea that you would, uh, you, you would take a symptom like being frightened of your shadow mm -hmm. and, and, and treat that as a symptom rather than as a, a product of extreme anxiety mm -hmm. that could be changed and dealt with and, and re rethought of and relearned. Mm -hmm. the, the, the whole notion of relearning was, was, was alien. <laughs> in that culture and terrible things happened and that could have happened to you with the wrong psychiatrist. Would you mind explaining to us <coughs> what, what was going on, not, not just my brain, what, what's going on with someone who has such extreme anxiety that they begin to entertain deeply irrational ideas like that? What's going on in that person's brain? What was happening there? Well, let me give you an example of someone else. Uh, this person thought he was hearing voices. Mm -hmm. yeah. and. and if you think about it, we always have thoughts in our heads, mm -hmm. and uh, there are always sounds. Similarly, you can have sensations in your body, mm -hmm. um, you know, that can end up feeling, oh God, what's wrong? Is there a pain there? Is there mm -hmm. something wrong with me? So, there's, there's any sensory experience um, can be created and imagined by the, the, 
the, the brain. Like I've got tinnitus non-stop, a yeah. sound that doesn't exist, but it's present at all times. Exactly, and only yeah. when you pay attention to it yeah. are you really aware of it. Yeah. And attention is critical. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you're in a state of anxiety is your whole, uh, um, your whole attention and memory systems become biased uh. to look for evidence of threat because mm-hmm. you're in what's called a threat mindset. You're anticipating punishment and you're looking for threats. So, for example, if I was in a state of anxiety here tonight, I'd be scanning for the person who's looking bored Mm -hmm. or angry. Don't worry, that's why the audience are dark. (laughs) Ten years a gig in, lads, that's why you're in the dark. (laughs) Seriously. Exactly. That's, that's, that's why I have them in the dark. From yeah. years ago, I, I'd do a gig, I'd see one person who wasn't enjoying themselves yeah. and I, I could ruin the rest of the gig. Exactly. So that you're at, that's because when you're anxious, your attention will preferentially process and, threat but, signals And like why that. then do I discredit everyone who's enjoying it? Like similarly, if, if I do this gig tonight and a bunch of people go online and say, that was a great gig, and then one person says that yeah. was a shit gig, that's the one I focus on and I ignore all the positive. Yeah. And that happens when you're, when you're um, anxious, uh, you're more likely to, to, to pay attention to that. And the rational thought is, I don't know how many people are in here, say there's six. A thousand. <laughs> yeah. Okay, say there's, say there's a thousand people in here. You know that statistically it's impossible that a thousand people will all be entertained and happy. Yeah. And so the rational thought is there, of course, there's going to be 10% of people who don't like what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Who, you know. But when you're anxious, that, there's no room for that thought because mm-hmm. your, your cognitive processing is, is disrupted by the anxiety. And also your attention is selectively focusing on mm-hmm. further evidence. Also, your memory system is biased. Mm-hmm. It's much harder oh, to remember wow. the gigs that went really well yeah. and much easier to remember the gigs that went really badly. Yeah. And that's a vicious cycle because, because your attention's focusing on threat and your memory's remembering past failures, mm-hmm. that makes you more anxious. It becomes more anxious, it becomes harder to think the antidote rational thoughts like, of course, of course, some gigs mm-hmm. don't go well. Yeah, some you lose some, you win some. Yeah, most of them go okay. But it could also yeah. be like you get on the bus in the morning and the bus driver doesn't say hello to you the way you want to say hello and then you assume that the bus driver hates you. Yeah. <laughs> but like, right. who can relate? Or a co-worker. Like, you all know that. That's, like, what, but what I want to know as well is like, what, what the, f- why, why, what the fuck is that about? That doesn't, but like, we, we all do that. Why did evolution decide, ah, yeah, let's go for a bit of that. Or God. <laughs> well, um, yeah, so, so, so it's very important for us to be able to read other people. In fact, it's probably the, the critical survival skill. It's probably why we have big brains. It's to, because we lived, we, we were a group species, mm-hmm. and we needed big brains to try and work out what all the, everyone else was thinking, because what other people are thinking will determine what, whether they're going to help you or, or, or kill you. So, so, so reading other people's facial expressions is incredibly important, and anticipating whether someone may be a threat is really a good survival thing. Something that might have been 30,000 years ago in a primitive society where it literally may have meant life or death. It was quite useful for us. But now we're here in in a functioning society and if someone doesn't like you, they're not going to kill you. And and if you're prone to anxiety, 
um, it's, it's very, very easy to let that primitive impulse mm -hmm. dominate. And that's why the critical thing is uh, learning to control your attention. Mm -hmm. Because where your attention is determines what your thoughts are and therefore what your emotions are and what your behaviors are. And that's why things like mindfulness are so incredibly important. And so that's why it's fantastic your psychiatrist gave you that, yeah. that book to read. And that suddenly... The breathing was the thing. The that, the, the, the before breathing. I even tried mindfulness. Yeah, like, yeah. And this is something that's very useful for any anxiety. I didn't notice that throughout all of the anxiety, my breaths were... <sighs> yeah. And it was all up here. Yeah. And then the book just said, very simple, from now on, you don't breathe like that. You put your hand on your stomach, you breathe in through your nose, and you go... Until you feel your stomach get big. And I'd never done it before. Yeah. And I did it for a day, and everything became clear. And do you know what, Lime Boy? Go on. <laughs> when you did that, you changed the chemistry of your brain more precisely and more fundamentally and more helpfully than any pharmaceutical you could take could. What happened there? So when you breathe the way you just described, mm -hmm. you change the carbon dioxide levels in your blood. Mm -hmm. There's a wee part of the middle of your, deep in your brain called the locus ceruleus. Mm -hmm. It's the only source of noradrenaline. Mm -hmm. And noradrenaline's part of the fight or flight system. Mm -hmm. Okay? And the, the locus ceruleus is sensitive to the carbon dioxide levels in your blood. It goes up and down with your breathing. So if you're feeling anxious, you do, as you say, tend to breathe shallowly mm -hmm. from the top of your chest. And sometimes you, if you're, you, you may even hold your breath unconsciously. Yeah. That changes the carbon dioxide levels, increases the noradrenaline levels in your brain, and it, it, it worsens the effects of anxiety. It cre essentially creates anxiety mm -hmm. because noradrenaline has an inverted U-shaped curve too little, like at four in the morning, mm -hmm. you don't think clearly and, uh, uh, and too much is the same when you're very stressed. So there's a sweet spot of noradrenaline that your breathing is a brilliant tool mm -hmm. uh, to use to control. And if you can bring down your noradrenaline levels, you reduce your anxiety and that makes it easier to think, allow that thought in to say, well, of course, there's one person in this audience mm -hmm. that's not amused. Allows you to, the, the, the rational thought to come in that's going to reduce your anxiety even further. So I'm now able to use more of my brain, more of the computing part of my brain. Absolutely. And yeah. here's, the, here's the awful thing. If you have internalized a medical characterization of yourself yeah. as I'm a, what I call the curse of genetic fatalism, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm anxiety neurodiverse. Mm -hmm. Why would you bother learning, relearning breathing techniques? Because that's not the, that's nothing to do with what's causing the way I am feeling. It's ironically as well. A lot of it for me was the fact that I was I was born with asthma, and asthma is something like I can't do anything about. Like it's gone now because I got older. But when I was a kid, I had fucking asthma. It was an actual issue. It's not something I could think my way around. And that medicalization of that process, my, so my dad was prone to anxiety. And the doctor said to my dad, your son's got asthma, right? So if he runs really fast, right, there, there's a little risk of him dying. 
And then my like, and then my dad went, "What? He's gonna die if he runs." And then the doctor went, "No, no, no, come back, come back." No, I didn't say that. I'm just saying he's got asthma. So like, if he really goes mad, like there's a, I, I'm just telling you because I have to. He's got asthma. He might get an asthma attack. Some people who get asthma attack die. But my dad heard that as I am going to die. Yeah. But then when I was four or five years of age, what happens when all the other kids are outside playing, playing soccer? I get told, no, you're going to die. But then I learned, if you be normal, if you behave the way that your peers are behaving, it means fucking death. So then I get to 18, 19 years of age, where I'm now a fucking adult, and I'm in college, and I, I got a desperate panic attack once watching a friend making a stew. Seriously, like flat out, nearly, nearly got knocked out unconscious. And I, then I took this to my counselor and the counselor was like, we need to speak about the fucking stew. Or you're, you're not leaving this room. What, what does the stew mean to you? But through decent therapy, do you know what the stew meant? It meant autonomy. What frightened me was, I, w- I was four years of age, not allowed playing soccer. My friend was doing something that a 19-year-old does. Yeah. They were feeding themselves. They yeah. were preparing their own meals. That terrified the fuck out it of me. It made you think of death, really. Yeah, yeah. but, but an yeah. Ang- a decent anxiety attack is the experience of, I am dying right now. Yeah. 999, I'm dying. Like, yeah. that's an, a panic attack is, yeah, I yeah. am dying. Yeah. And I got a many of those, I am dying panic attacks. And I had to, through counseling, I had received the message from a young age that to be normal means to die yeah. because my dad, he had anxiety yeah. and then he got his anxiety because his dad had to fight the black and tans. Yeah. But seriously, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this yeah. is how it goes. Yeah. His, his dad fucking shot 17 black and tans and had trauma for the, his life. And then he, his, my granddad's mother was in the famine. So like, I don't see that as, as, as genetic, but I do see no. that as... as intergenerational exactly. trauma that got passed yeah. to me yeah, yeah. I learned as a little child I'm going to look at the adults around me and see what they're doing and if my dad is terrified of everything and telling me that I'm going to die I don't have the criticality at four years of age to, to say stop talking out of your arse <laughs> so I believed it and I internalized it and th- but then through counselling I repatterned my brain you did. I was able to challenge no and what, I st- what did I start doing I started buying carrots. I started buying meat. I started, make, I started making a stew. Yeah. As ridiculous as it sounds, the act of doing the thing I was so terrified of and testing my environment, all of a sudden then I'm, I'm, it goes from that to being, I reckon I can make songs and go on stage. Yeah. Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. From making a stew yeah. to actually achieving goals. You know, you should write a textbook. <laughs> because really, I get loads of offers, but I refuse to do it because I'm not qualified. Well, look, but you know what you say is absolutely right. Everything's about anxiety. You know, mm-hmm. almost everything is about uh, you know anxiety. And uh, if to the extent that you can uh, l- treat that as a learnable, mm-hmm. learnable state, then it is possible to make almost any changes to your emotional state. Mm -hmm. But here's the problem. If you handicap yourself with a fixed theory Mm -hmm. about the source of that, like, oh, my mother, my mother was very, very anxious. Mm -hmm. Her mother was very, very anxious. Mm -hmm. Had I internalized 
a medical concept that I'm just a genetically anxious person. Exactly. Why would I engage? And it wasn't easy for you to learn to reprogram your brain. No, it took years, it took, very it took difficult. Years. Yeah. And that's, I mean, the learning takes years as you're growing up. You're 18, 19 years mm -hmm. learning that doing normal things means death. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's 19 years of patterns of brain activity being reinforced. You can't, you're not going to unlearn that in a day or a, a month. You're going to have to, it's going to take time. And there's going to be trial and error. And there's going to be times when you do really badly and you feel you're going nowhere. But if you have a fixed theory, a fixed medicalized notion of what the cause of this is, the first setback you have, you'll say, oh, this is not working. Why would I This bother? is how I am. Like, like with, with my fucking asthma, which I can say is like, I don't know what the asthma was caused, but I doubt it was emotional. That's a thing that was wrong with me. But that's why as well, <clears throat> you know, I could have easily said, sure, my dad had anxiety and his dad had anxiety and my, my, his uh, ma had anxiety and said, like you said, it's genetic. But instead I went post-colonial. If you're a farmer who's forced to fight British soldiers, you don't want to be a soldier, that's going to fuck you up. If you existed in a famine, that's going to fuck you up. That's going to leave some deep shit. And they, 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 like, they all had children, and those children had to watch and learn how the adults are. And of course it's going to make it to me. And one of the things that drives me and, and, and that gives me deep fucking meaning in my life is... I'm breaking a cycle. So I get to break the cycle. You know what I mean? And you're a brilliant, I mean, that's such an important message. That's just, yeah, yeah. But not, not like everybody. If, if you, if, if you've, whatever the fuck is, is going on with yourself and you can see parallels in, in your parents or your grandparents, what a beautiful opportunity to break a cycle, to end the pain, to end the thing that caused them torture, that's causing you torture, and go, fuck it, it ends with me. You know? What a lovely little thing to find meaning in. It's a very important message. Mm. I mean, yeah. And it's, it's selfless. It's one of those things, when it comes to finding meaning, you'll never get meaning in anything that has to do with receiving praise or even achievements or any aspect of your behavior. But something like that is, is it's, it's internal, it's intrinsic, you know? Fine boy, if you, could, if you could, and you're a brilliant communicator, tell everyone in this room and all the millions of people who might listen to you that you have control over your own emotions. It's a hard business you can learn. There's ways of, you know, that belief itself is going to cause so many lives to be so much better. But with that belief of overcoming poverty or hardship or trauma, we can all do it because our brains are so plastic. But we, we, we live in a, a century, we're now entering the century of the mind where that we have to realize that we can become captains of our own ship, of our mm -hmm. own mental processes. And that's why methods like mindfulness and the books that you read, that all of these things are such wonderful, wonderful um, uh, messages, if you like, for people to realize that yes, you don't have to always feel anxious. You don't, you don't have to feel uh, low in mood all the time. That you are potentially, if you only believe in yourself, you can actually 
have the confidence to, to change that. Um, what, what I say to myself too as well is, <clears throat> I've no, so one of the things with anxiety was the, the fear of, of not, not having control. And I, I accepted, I've no control over what happens to me in life, none. But I have full fucking control over how I react to what happens. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that, the feeling of meaning and, and power and agency I get from that, no matter what the fuck happens. And also accepting that like life is suffering, like tragedy happens, bad yeah. things happen, and pain happens. Yeah. But I have a choice over how I react to that pain. <clears throat> a metaphor I used once was um, if I go out for a walk and I brush off a toxic plant. Let's just say a plant I'm allergic to. So this plant, that's the activating event, causes me to have a little rash. Now that's unpleasant. It it's, was outside of my control, it was an accident. It is suffering, I've got a fucking rash. However, if I decide to fucking scratch at it, to the point that it bleeds yeah. and it makes boils and now yeah, it's gone yeah. on for months, that's a choice. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And, it, and it's the same thing with a bereavement, with a loss. Yeah. Um, the fucking pandemic we just had, I didn't have any control over that. Um, I coped with it. That was a nettle that stung me, but I, di I didn't... The nettle is stinging me, but I'm not going to be scratching that wound. Yeah. You know, you said earlier about setting goals and taking action and starting cooking your stew. You know? Yeah. And the thing about anxiety is that what it does is it makes you want to do less stuff. Mm -hmm. It makes you withdraw because you want to avoid threat. Mm -hmm. So the, the person who's socially anxious, you know, just the text, oh, I don't, I don't feel well, I'm not coming out tonight, mm -hmm. you know, or, or I won't go to that interview. Mm -hmm. And across the world, and there's a study of 40 different countries, anxious people do less of everything mm -hmm. because they're in a constant avoidance, threat avoidance mindset. And that's why um, what you said about just doing stuff, mm -hmm. one of the antidotes to anxiety and the building of confidence uh, that can lead to you being here tonight is just setting goals for yourself that yeah. just stretch you a bit, taking that action that then give you that little success experience, that little sense of achievement. You wrote a book about success. About the, was that what you're talking about there? The, yeah. the, those little wins That's and right. what that yeah, does. Because yeah. when I was doing yeah. that, I experienced it as a, as a boost in self-esteem. Yes. So I... I, at one point, I would not have been able to sit in this crowd. And if I had to sit in this crowd, it would have been as close to the exit door as possible. And now I'm grand up here. And my fear used to be, fuck it, what if I'm in a big crowd and everyone starts staring at me? <laughs> I'm grand. I'm okay with it now. But I used to be the exact opposite. And how it started, it was actually the transformative power of art. So... I had agoraphobia, so I wasn't leaving my... I'd created fucking boundaries. I wasn't leaving. So then, because I had access to counselling, which was free in college at the time, I would do little things like, I'm going to the pub tonight, and I know that I, it's going to be fucking terrifying, it's going to be awful, but I'm going to try bits of it. And the one thing that broke me through, and this is why art was so important to me, this was before fucking smartphones and shit, you know? It was before Shazam. So I was in a pub, and the DJ played a song. The song was uh, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised by Gil Scott Heron. 
who's, uh, his dad was actually the first ever black person to play for Glasgow Celtic. Little Scottish fact for you. But I, heard, I was in a pub and I was just, I was having anxiety. I'm in a crowd and this song came on and I would have been here and the DJ box would have been over there. And I just needed to know what this fucking song was. It's like I couldn't take out my phone. I couldn't ask anyone because no one knew it. I was like, if I don't go up to that fucking DJ box and ask that DJ what this song is, this is going to be lost forever, and this is the most incredible song I've ever fucking heard. The beauty of connecting with that song transcended my fear at that time, yeah. and I fucking walked up to and I, I asked the DJ, and I remember writing it down on my hand, because there was no phone to write it down on, and protecting my hand for the rest of my life so I could go home onto LimeWare and legally download it. And, <laughs> but... Only afterwards did I realize, holy fuck, you just walked through a crowd. You just walked through a crowd. And art, because art for me gets past all that ego shit, it goes to something deep inside me. That's what helped me do it, you know? But that little act, I was fucking on cloud nine for a week. I was like, look, I can't believe I just walked through a crowd. You you know what was happening in your brain as well? Go on. I mean, this, the, what was going on mentally was the most important thing. But just as you, you're, that success, that feeling of success, having I mean, walked through the crowd, would make your, the, the, your reward network in the brain release extra dopamine in the reward network. The same, it's the same network that gets switched on massively by things like cocaine or mm-hmm. pints of Guinness. You know, the thing that makes you feel good, you've only got one of them, that reward network. And that little success experience of walking up to that DJ would have given you a little boost of dopamine activity, which is a natural antidepressant mm-hmm. and a natural anti-anxiety drug. And that's why what you were saying about just setting goals for yourself, the things you do and just stretching yourself a bit, giving yourself lots of these little success experiences, that's, that's an, as important for the pharmacy of your brain as the breathing is that you were mm-hmm. talking about earlier. And just before we take a little break, right, wh- wh- just in terms of neuroplasticity, wh- what is that doing then? To, like, I had a pathway that was fearful, yeah. and then it got less fearful, to now the point that autonomously now, like I don't have to hype myself up before I come out here. I don't have to say it to myself, you're going out to a crowd now. I literally don't. This is absolutely fine. This is normal to me. That part of my brain is gone. Yeah. And the concept of being in front of an audience doesn't faze me one bit. Yeah. So my, something has literally changed in my brain. Yeah, the, the amygdala is a big kind of emotion processing center in the middle of your brain, uh, both for fear and anger. And um, in, in your previous self, if you had thought about when you were 19 about doing this... No, 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 no. Your amygdala would have just lit up. Mm-hmm. the frontal lobes of your brain which is where you would engage in controlling your attention and uh, thinking through problems if you like in, in a, a rational way that would have mm-hmm. been closed down you, your brain would have been in emergency mode mm-hmm. so be, but because you have done this several times just your, each time you do it your amygdala just activates less and less Leaves, so like lifting weights. It's like lifting weights. But my brain. Yeah. Yeah. And and just the, 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 the pattern of synaptic connections in your brain has been changed largely by the things you do 
mm -hmm. also by the things you think, but behavior is just critical. And the, now that because you've done this so often, mm -hmm. you just don't get that disruption from the anxiety center of your brain. And so you're able to think about what you're doing, be the interviewer that you are, and you know, be the comedian you know, and thinker that you are. Yeah. Thank you. But uh, we were having such a good chat. We yeah. forgot about it. And what, one thing we were talking about backstage was the stuff that I'm talking about up here that we're both talking about, about the, the process of going from being mentally unhealthy to being healthy. Like, how do you create a society where that is just normal, that's available to everyone? And, you know, the, the, the seeming impossibility of how do you make that much resources available to people? How do you make that many therapists, psychologists available? We already, if you take the beef industry, right? So we have I industries that exist right now that are fucking mad unsustainable. A steak shouldn't cost a fiver, right? It should not. If you look at a cow, how much water that cow needs, how much uh, land that cow needs for its food to be grown, we have an industry whereby for some reason, a steak is a fiver. So we've created this thing that seems utterly impossible, but we've done it in the service of capitalism. So yes, we can as a society, if you just change the mindset, we can create an industry where there's these massive resources, but instead of it being valuing the price of a steak, it's valuing a person's emotional well-being. But the problem is, under capitalism, under consumerism, Capitalism can't really exist <clears throat> in a mentally healthy society, specifically the wing of capitalism known as consumerism, which is advertising, right? If you listen to my podcast, you'd have heard me speaking about this before. A bar of soap, all soap does is it gets you clean. That's all it does. And it can make you smell nice. But that's all that soap does. But if you look at an advert for like Dove or something like that, they're not Look at our soap. Look how clean it's going to get you. When was the last time you saw a soap ad that was talking about how clean it's going to get you? It doesn't. Soap sells you a better version of yourself. Most products that we purchase and how they're advertised to us, they don't sell us what they actually do. They're selling us a better version of ourselves. A pair of shoes, a brand, a big fancy car, they're selling you a better version of yourself. If you're grounded as a human being and you've got an internal locus of evaluation and you feel okay with who you are, you don't, a bar, a bar, you know that a bar of soap isn't going to make you a better person. Do you get me? So capitalism exists and thrives on people being consistently insecure, people consistently being so unsure of themselves that we can get confused to think that a product will make us better as people. So thank you there to my guest, uh, Professor Ian Robertson that was an absolutely fantastic chat I hope you took something from that yourself apologies for the sloppiness in the audio this week or even the edit I'm away from my studio I have limited equipment it was difficult enough putting this together so apologies for that but that's that's the nature of this beast I can't be in my studio all the time I make this podcast myself I don't have a team of people and it was unexpected that was away this week um, dog bless I'll be back next week with a hot take and a lovely studio sounding podcast two of them
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.